You're listening to The Cutting Edge, presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker. Hi, I'm Petra Hilleberg, President and CEO of Hilleberg the Tentmaker. My dad, Bo Hilleberg, a lifelong outdoorsman, founded Hilleberg 50 years ago, and we've been family-owned, family-operated, and European-made ever since. We proudly specialize in building strong, lightweight tents and in never compromising on quality of materials or construction. Our tents have been specifically chosen by polar expeditions, mountaineers, backpackers, and avid outdoor adventurers, just like you, all over the world. We build tents for everyone's adventure. This is Dougal McDonald, editor of the American Alpine Journal, the AHA. This episode of The Cutting Edge is special to me because of the mountain where it takes place, Long's Peak in northern Colorado. This 14,000-foot or 4,300-meter peak in Rocky Mountain National Park has such a rich history and topography that I was able to write a whole book about it. Now it's sadly out of print. It's been the center of Colorado alpine climbing for over a century, and 2020 has been an outstanding year on the mountain. Let's add it up. Runners Kyle Richardson and Kate Hale set male and female speed records for climbing and descending Long's Peak. Male and female fastest known times were set for the Long's Peak Duathlon. That's riding your bike from Boulder, about 40 miles away, running up the peak, and then running and riding home. Two women, Bryn Keenan and Jessica Kyle, posted the FKT for the Long's Peak Triathlon, riding and running up the mountain, plus climbing the diamond, and back. The diamond is the nearly 1,000-foot wall that's the centerpiece of Long's Peak, and Stefan Griebel and Wade Morris set a car-to-car speed record for climbing it. A 23-year-old, John Ebers, repeated the diamond's hardest route and managed to tick his very first 514 in the process. Josh Wharton and Phil Gruber climbed a new free link up, and on the very same day, Chris Widener finished a four-year project to free a new route up the center of the wall. Chris is our guest on this episode of The Cutting Edge. Though he's best known as a rock climber, Chris has a diverse mountain background. For this new route, he teamed up with Bruce Miller, another climber from Boulder who is better known as an alpinist. For four years, these two stayed home each summer to focus on their diamond project. And this summer, it finally paid off. I hope you enjoy our talk. So welcome, Chris, and and thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. I would like to sort of set the stage. I mean, many listeners will be familiar with the diamond, but why don't you tell us about this area and what makes it unique as a climbing area? Yeah, so the diamond is the northeast face of Long's Peak, and it gets a little bit of sun in the morning in the summer, and that's about it. So what really makes the diamond unique um, in at least a couple of ways is, is one, the cold. <laughs> there aren't that many walls. Maybe Mount Hooker and the Wind Rivers is a is another one, but um, there aren't that many walls in the lower 48 that are, are that cold. And of course, another piece of that is just how high it is. Um, the diamond itself tops out at over 14,000 feet. So it's uh, the highest, um, gosh, I think it's the highest alpine wall in North America, actually. Mm-hmm. So, well, it must be the highest with hard rock climbing on it. Yes, yes. And it's a short season, mid-June to early September. Yeah, exactly. Unless you're Josh Wharton and you can bring it into October, but (laughs) I don't know about that. (laughs) 
and you get a lot of afternoon thunderstorms. Yeah, that's always a monkey on your back, as you would know. It's always stressful, even on days with a really low percentage forecast of storms. Bruce and I up there, Bruce Miller, my partner on this, he and I have experienced terrible storms, lightning storms. In fact, one where where someone, a boulderer actually in the valley, was struck by lightning on a day that was only forecasted to have a 10% chance of storms in precip. Wow. What happened to you guys on that day? Gosh, <laughs> for us, we were working on our route on top rope. We were both working on different pitches, and we were close to the top of the diamond when the lightning came in very suddenly. I mean, maybe eight or nine minutes before it happened, we we saw for the first time the really dark, inky clouds. <laughs> we certainly had no time to get out of there until it was striking. So we were yelling back to each other. Uh, he was about a pitch below me. And we were trying to decide, should we rappel down as far as our fixed lines go, which was still about halfway up the diamond. That's as far as we could go because we had no ropes long enough. Um, or should we jumar to the top? So wow. <laughs> it was kind of this stressful, like weird exchange in the middle of this storm. And we ended up just jumaring for our lives straight up into it in order to get off the face and be able to kind of take cover. Wow. Well, there you have it. There's the diamond for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so you and Bruce Miller had already done one new route on the diamond earlier, right? Yeah. Yeah. In 2010, we did hearts and arrows. And Hearts and Arrows is what, 12B or something like that? Yes, 12B. And well, first of all, how long does your partnership with Bruce go back? We started climbing together in 2003. We met at the Boulder Rock Club. We had some mutual friends. I had just moved to Boulder actually two years earlier. So I uh, came from Seattle, moved to Boulder 2001, got to know people at the Boulder Rock Club, met Bruce. And when we started climbing, we first went to Vitavu together, and then we did a bunch of other trad things like we'd climb in the South Platte, we climbed in the Black, we climbed up in the park, climbed in Eldo, uh, Lumpy Ridge. You know, those were kind of the places he and I would go. He wasn't your sport climbing partner. <laughs> no, he not at first, but it's actually really funny. I mean, since then, we've done a lot of sport climbing together. I think in order to get better at stuff like the Diamond, Bruce really uh, latched on to sport climbing and, and has become very successful at it. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, he's an alpine climber at heart, right? He's done a lot of expeditions and, yeah, uh, you know, he wasn't initially a hard rock climber. Exactly. So was it while, while you were working on Hearts and Arrows that you saw the line of this, this new route? Actually, it was before that that we kind of first were into it. Really, it goes back to before I even knew Bruce. Um, he had gone up and climbed the Enos Mills Wall, which is the original aid route that shares the first five pitches of our route uh, that we finished up this year. And actually the first four pitches of Hearts and Arrows. I see. Yeah. So Bruce aided that a long time ago. And he recognized the potential for a free climb in that zone. And then in 2005, he and I went up and free climbed to the top of pitch five, which uh, pitch five is 11 plus, And it had already been freed in 1980 by Jeff Aki and Leonard Coyne. But we were hoping to free above that, which was the A3 crux of the Enos Mills wall. But, you know, we kind of like went up a little ways, uh, immediately ran into loose rock, 
and poor, poor pro. I mean, it was a three and we just didn't really have a chance of exploring enough to really see the line very well. And we eventually bailed that day. Um, and then it wasn't until 2010 when we were working on hearts and arrows that we both kind of took another look at it and we're like, Oh yeah, you know, now that we're above it, we can look down and see where it might go. And yeah, so that's when it really came together as an idea to pursue. Mm -hmm. And is it, is the upper part basically to the right of hearts and arrows? Yes. Yep. And, and how many, how much of it is kind of new terrain and how much of it was on the old Enos Mills route? So the top four pitches, it's a, in total nine pitch route, the top four pitches are new free climbing, but about two and a half pitches of that, I think are, are completely brand new climbing that had never been aided. And, oh, you know what? I was going to ask, who is Enos Mills? So he was a turn of the century guy, um, Long's Peak aficionado. I think he climbed Long's Peak more than 300 times in the like 1800s, early 1900s. He was instrumental, I believe, in establishing Rocky Mountain National Park. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think he was an early Longs Peak guide, and he he lobbied in, intensively for the creation of Rocky Mountain Park. I think it opened in 1915. When did you actually start working on the route that would become Gambler's Fallacy? And, and, and what was the process in those early trips? So we started work on it in July 2017, and our process was, you know, step one was carry a ton of gear to the top of Long's Peak, um, <laughs> you know, including a bunch of static line. Um, yeah. And I mean, for people who aren't familiar, I mean, this is what, I guess you go up the North Face probably. So you're talking like seven miles and I don't know my, how many thousand vertical feet. Yeah. From the trailhead, we were going about 5,000 vertical yeah. feet. Um, and actually, so, so day one, July 9th, 2017, it was still really snowy that year. And so we couldn't really go up the North face with all that junk, um, without also having to have brought ice tools and crampons. So we ended up doing the keyhole and it, it was actually pretty funny. We actually got to the summit plateau and right when we hit the summit plateau, I ran over, tagged the true summit, which we always do this. It's kind of an OCD thing, but pretty fun. <laughs> I raised my arms above my head on the true summit said, yay, finally back up on Long's Peak after seven years. And I felt my hair stand up and I felt electricity between my fingers. And Bruce, I saw him look up at the sky and then throw the metal ice axe he had in his hand across the plateau and just start running <laughs> because he saw some strikes and it was like, oh my gosh, okay, we got to get off of this because uh, it was suddenly dangerous. So we we actually abandoned our gear, ran down the keyhole as far as we could, uh, which was probably just a few hundred vertical feet, waited around for like an hour until this storm passed. And then we were able to get back up to the top, you know, find where we were going to start wrapping in and all this. But it was just funny because it's like, oh yeah, Here's this glorious, beautiful day, Long's Peak again. But oh yeah, just a reminder, this is serious stuff. <laughs> so this was very much a, a top-down project then? Yes, yes. I mean, we did put in our 2005 ground-up effort on it, and, and that informed us enough to know that we weren't good enough climbers to continue to go from the ground um, on this. I'm sure some people would be more than capable, but for Bruce and, and me, it was uh, the only way we could do it was going top-down. Yeah. And not all of it I, from the photos I've seen, I mean, it's not all, uh, 
you know, straight up crack systems either. You had to sort of figure stuff out, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a huge reason why top down was, was good for us because yeah, we actually end up leaving the Enos Mills line going left onto a slightly overhanging face and without protection bolts there, um, there's four bolts that we placed. There'd be just simply no way of, of really rehearsing it. Um, or, Mm -hmm. you know, even seeing if it goes and we didn't want to place a bunch of bolts just exploring from the bottom up, you know, that would lead to nowhere. So, you know, it's kind of like the, the modern, way of doing things, uh, even though it's, it's kind of, you know, maybe not going to be the way of the future anymore, but who knows? We'll see. What do you mean by that? You think people will eventually get good enough that they can just launch up these things? Well, I guess, you know, doing a new route is a slightly different deal. Um, I guess what I, I kind of bled two things into one there. Um, certainly the modern way of rehearsing established routes, even on the diamond these days is a lot of people are going top down with static lines and and top roping. And I think that's the kind of thing that will probably eventually be seen as lesser style and people will be more willing to go for the ground up on-site efforts on even the 513s and and harder routes. But in terms of first ascents, uh, on the diamond at least, because there aren't that many pure crack systems that haven't been climbed or or free climbed already, maybe what we're doing is still the way that's going to have to be done to pioneer new routes up there. I'm not sure. Yeah, I see. So, so how many, how many bolts did you end up placing? We ended up placing nine protection bolts and nine belay bolts. And are those, are you hand drilling? Yeah. Yep. Hand drilling. The yeah, national park. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Stainless steel. Yeah. It's time consuming, but, but worth it. And, you know, in a way it's kind of cool with the whole hand drilling requirement. I mean, you just don't overbolt things. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, so how, I mean, you must've spent many days up there before you really even started climbing or trying to do, you know, link pitches. Yes, exactly. I mean, it took us the first few days of kind of swinging around on our ropes, exploring options. I mean, he and I would be next to each other on different static lines discussing, well, I kind of think it goes this way. And I think it goes this way. And and actually, I got to give Bruce credit for seeing the line that became the crux pitch, which was what I mentioned earlier, leaving the Enos Mills wall on that overhanging face out left. Um, I looked at that and I just saw there's no way like that's not going to go. But Bruce was like, yeah, I don't know. I think it might go. It's worth a try. And so we ended up placing a couple of directionals just so we could get onto it. And we played around with it and it took us days before we realized, Oh yeah, I think each move does go. So, yeah. So you started in 2017 and here it is 2020. Uh, you know, how long was it before you were really trying to, uh, to red point pitches? Um, like this season. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Like, I mean, basically the interesting thing is, neither Bruce nor I had red pointed any of the hard pitches until we actually sent the route because we were always going up there and top roping just because it was so much easier and more efficient for us both to be climbing at the same time. So we kind of worked it as much as we could on top rope, tried to figure out the gear on top rope. And as for me, at least I kind of mock led the route with, uh, you know, imagining how I would clip these pieces and all this. I mean, it was full, full, you know, working it down to the bone spore climbing style, even on the trad pitches, you know? So, uh, then we went up and, and, and did it. And 
it actually, you know, our preparation worked. <laughs> right. Okay. So you, I mean, so you, when you were up there, you'd go up probably for two days and spend, spend a night up there. You were sleeping up at chasm view. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, initially our first couple of summers, 17 and 18, we probably did a 50, 50 thing where half the time we would just go up for one long day, but um, we eventually realized that we could get more out of a trip, even though we were more tired after two days of working on it. It was worth it to only have to do the approach once. <laughs> right. Yeah. And why, don't, why don't you describe Chasm View because it's a pretty amazing bivy spot. Yeah. Gosh. So, well, Chasm View itself is where you get this just amazing view of the diamond that you can just walk to. Um, it's, it's really not far at all from the face itself and you see from bottom to top and you can see down to chasm Lake. It's just this panorama that's hard to believe as you're slogging up for hours and all you see is the boulder field and, and some little, little peaks, you know, so you pop over chasm view and it's breathtaking. Our bivy is just about a couple hundred feet lower than chasm view amongst some rocks. So it's a little bit protected. There's some there's some rings of rocks around little flat spots that have been there for decades. Yeah. It's, it's a really cool place. It's at about 13,200 feet is where we bivy. Right. So that's uh well, you're, you're higher than the start of the diamond at that at that point. Yeah. That's cool. I've slept at chasm view a couple of times and I found it not only really cold, but just the altitude made it really hard to sleep. Um, were you going up there enough that it didn't seem like a big deal or did you also find it hard to sleep up there? So I've always found it hard to sleep up at altitude until I discovered Ambien. <laughs> and uh, so now I'll just pop an Ambien before I go to sleep and I usually get a, a pretty decent sleep. Yeah, and, that's brilliant. Yeah, and it doesn't seem to affect me the next day. I mean, people have different reactions to it. Bruce doesn't seem to, uh, it doesn't seem to help him very much. And I know other people who are afraid to take it because they sleepwalk with it. But so far, I've, I've been okay with it. <laughs> If you're sleepwalking with Ambien, it's a good thing you're bivying a couple hundred feet below Chasm <laughs> Exactly. Were you mostly alone up there when you were working on the route, or did you always have company? I mean, it's become such a busy place. Yeah. I'd say most of the time, by far, we were with other people on the diamond. There were other climbers. However, we purposely went up on some kind of cold or, or poor weather forecast days just so we could get some work done that would require, like, cleaning a pitch where we'd have to actually knock a few little rocks off. Um, and so on some of those days, we purposely went up to try to be there when nobody else was there. And we were able to do that a handful of times, but yeah, almost all the time there were people and more and more people for sure this year than there were even in 2017. Was that fun or is that kind of a drag to have so many people around? Oh, I like it. I think it's so cool that so many people, are feeling competent and, and good enough to go explore the Alpine. I think it's great. Cool. So, so what was the final lineup on the, on the hard pitches? I mean, I know there's some sort of moderate pitches at the, at the start of the route, but how many really hard pitches are they or are there and how difficult are they? Pitch five is 11 D that's maybe that's the first pitch that feels really hard. Actually, that's not true. The third pitch is 10 a, it's this old 10A on the Enos Mills wall, but it's like a 50 meter pitch that the top 20 meters is an off width that turns into kind of a squeeze <laughs> chimney. So that's an exhausting pitch. And I'm not a great off width climber by any stretch. So 
So the 10A pitch is hard on pitch three. <laughs> then there's the 11D pitch five. And then it's uh, 13B, 12B, 13A, 12D. And this is all, I mean, pretty much right around 14,000 feet or just under 14,000 feet. I mean, the route tops out very near the summit of Long's Peak. Yeah, yeah. So it's all right around that 14,000 foot, yeah. Did you have to do anything to, you know, to prepare for hard rock climbing at that altitude? Or were you just... Um, you know, going up there enough and sort of general fitness that it, that it felt okay. In previous years, I felt like the general fitness and going up there wasn't enough for me. And actually, so what I did last year, I rented this unit from a company called Hypoxico where I could sleep at home. It's with like a head tent and I could set this system to any altitude I wanted to sleep at. It's the same kind of system that people like Emily Harrington have used to acclimatize for Himalayan peaks before heading over there. And I decided it was worth a try. So I, I used that and it actually was helpful. The only problem with it for me was that I would sleep so poorly during the nights when I was just at home using this thing that I would sometimes find myself not feeling rested enough when I actually had to go up there. But I felt more acclimatized. Um, but anyway, this year, Bruce and I committed to going up more often than we ever had. And then that actually finally proved to be enough for me right. to feel decent up there. Were there other things that you learned that sort of made it, made that led to the success this year? I mean, did you learn anything from doing hearts and arrows or other big projects like this that helped you to be ready to send this one? Yeah, I guess. So hearts and arrows was, uh, or is substantially easier than this one. So there was nothing too specific that that we had to do in order to get that one done. But this one, we've learned um, over the years, we always had these side projects. Bruce and I together and individually would have either, say, a sport climbing project in the Flatirons or some other stuff going on. I'd go to Rifle, have my sport project, then I'd come back out and go to the Diamond again. And and what we did this year is we just decided, okay, this is our number one priority this summer. Let's cut out all of that stuff unless it can just kind of fall into place somehow around this project. You know, no other project we've worked on is has demanded this much focus. And so really it was this route that kind of taught us how to send this route. You know what I mean? Huh. And, and I read that you spent a total of 51 days over the years on this. Yeah. Is that... Up to the day that you red pointed it, or was that just total? 51 days was uh, when I red pointed it, which was August 9th. And right. then we went up for day 52 and 53. We went up for Bruce to send, which he did over those two days. And then he went up and tried it again on the next good weather window, which was early September, to try it in a day. And he just didn't quite make it. Right. But yeah, okay. I, I want to come back to that. But I mean, so. 51 days. How many days did you spend this year? I mean, you said you really committed to going up, you know, time after time. Yeah. Let's see. This year was, I think, 23 days up there. Right. Yeah. And and I should clarify, when I say 23, it doesn't mean we had 23 climbing days on the diamond. I was also counting the days like where we'd hike up, leaving Boulder in late morning. We'd hike up to Chasm View. We'd get all our gear ready. We'd go to bed early, wake up early, and then have one climbing day, you know, or it could be when we would leave super early and have a climbing session in the evening and then another the next morning. Sure. So some yeah. of those days are just walking days, but still it all felt like 
substantial <laughs> and, yeah. worth, and worth counting. <laughs> <laughs> so August 9th, you send, uh, what was that day like? And, and, and how did it feel to really to finally get it done? That day was warmer than usual, which for me was crucial. Um, I always struggle with the cold up there, especially on the harder pitches where I'm crimping really small holds. I just tend to go numb. And so it was really nice. It was it was warm. It was a little bit breezy as it always is, but not not too windy. I felt rested. I felt like this might be one of only a few possible chances to send this thing this year. So I, I really was nervous about the day, like pretty much the whole day. I was kind of nervous, um, but in a good way. And yeah, each pitch went down. I mean, I knew exactly what to do. I have beta written down for all of the hard moves, all of the climbing, all of the gear. So I really felt prepared and I was able to execute and I didn't fall, which was awesome because I knew that if I had fallen on any of the hard pitches, especially if I had fallen on either the 12B pitch or the 13A roof pitch, where there's a crux at the very end, uh, it would it would significantly decrease my chances of sending. So I wow. knew that I had to tie in and just do my very best not to fall. Um, that 13A pitch is really near the top, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's the second to last pitch, and it ends about 60 feet from the top of the diamond. Right. So, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And actually the roof itself isn't the crux of the pitch. It's, it's higher on this vertical terrain where there's just these micro holds and kind of an, a really insecure low percentage feeling crux. And, uh, and that's what I was most worried about. And actually that's where Bruce on his two day free ascent, he, he got all the way up to that upper crux of that 13A pitch. So he was so close to the top, but he tried that pitch three times and didn't quite put it together. Um, oh, so then we, then we came back the next morning. But huh. yeah, but for me to top out that day, August 9th with Bruce, it, it was just incredible because we, yeah, I mean, gosh, we had just worked on it so hard together and it was, it was just a perfect day, really, the conditions and partnership and everything. And was the plan always on that day? Was the plan always that uh, that you'd be going for it and Bruce would be in support that day? Yeah, Bruce didn't even bring rock shoes. I mean, he was okay. just going to Jumar <laughs> the whole thing. Right. Okay. All yeah. right. So yeah, and actually, that was a you know, of course, a conscious decision on our part. I mean, we debated that many different times. Like, well, should we try to both send it the way we did Hearts and Arrows, or should we just support each other? Which you know, we hadn't really done that before. And in a way it's, it's not as cool because it's kind of more fun when you're rooting each other on and there's more at stake in a way. But we also realized there was no way we were both going to be able to send it on the same day. It would just be way too time consuming. So that's kind of how we came to that decision. So on that day, did you come from the true bottom? I mean, did you come up, you know, the North chimney or from, uh, you know, from Mills Glacier or did you rappel in or, you know, how, how did you define sort of a true send. Yeah, we actually ended up wrapping in from Chasm View just because we had our lead line up there. We had our rack up there. We had just brought it up um, a few days earlier. And so we had committed to just doing the Chasm View wraps. Right. So you you started on Broadway at the base. We started the, from Broadway. Yep. Right. Yep. The base of the true diamond. Okay. Yeah. Which actually was funny. That was for actually both of us, our first time ever doing the Chasm View repels. We had always before just gone up from the bottom, bottom. 
Or, or from the top of the diamond. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I guess I mean when we would go up to climb the diamond like a normal right. person, <laughs> we'd go from the very bottom. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you got so you've sent you guys kind of have like a Tommy and Kevin Donwall thing going, right? I mean, obviously, <laughs> this route was really hard for you, obviously, but you know you've climbed five fourteen, and, and you know you should almost expect to climb thirteen B or or eight A, despite the environment. But Bruce, you know, he still hadn't done it. And frankly, it was it was a bigger reach for him. I mean, we spoke a little bit about Bruce's background, him, you know, as an alpine climber. But could you just talk a little bit about how he kind of rose to the occasion and prepared to pull off this really difficult rock route? Absolutely. Yeah, it's um, I agree with you. It was definitely a, a further reach for Bruce. And it's just so impressive how optimistic he was able to stay throughout the last four summers. I mean, it wasn't looking good for a while there. I mean, you know, first we were both getting completely shut down. Then we learned some tricks. We learned some beta, you know, some holds broke off. We had to refigure out beta, all this stuff. And I was able to start putting things together fairly quickly uh, by our second season, I'd say. And Bruce was still struggling. In fact, he had never even top roped the crux pitch clean until mid-summer this year. I mean, he was just striving and striving and putting this tremendous amount of time and energy into this route, even though like he was not even sure he could do the moves. If I'm not mistaken, he'd never climbed a, a pitch this this hard. So he has climbed several 13Bs, but they've been at sea level, you know, and it's been, what, seven years since he has sent a 13B. So he has climbed this hard before, but to do this at 14,000 feet was super pushy for him and the style of the crux pitch it's very short actually it's only about a 35 foot pitch but it's it's like power endurance crimping on an overhanging wall it's not exactly like alpine bruce's style you know (laughs) (laughs) he's also quite a bit older than you isn't he yeah he was 56 when he sent it and he's 57 now awesome um yeah so so really i i can't talk enough about how motivating and impressive and and just you know comforting it it was to have bruce there and still optimistic throughout this whole process because there were certainly times when i was wondering whether this was possible for me to free climb and then i'd look at bruce and i'm like gosh well he thinks it's possible okay well it's got to be you know (laughs) and sure enough it was i mean he yeah it was great i mean he dug so so deep so when you sat on august 9th was he what was his state of mind? I mean, was he psyched or was he sort of, you know, like Kevin on the Don wall kind of, you know, now it's my turn. I got to do this. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, how, did, how did he feel? I bet you there was a mix because on the one hand, suddenly the pressure was turned up. Right. But, um, but he knew that I would go back with him as many times as necessary. So he wasn't worried about losing a partner. I told him I'd go next season. I'd go the season after he knew that, but he was worried about the season coming to a close, but on the other hand, he was also probably psyched that like, okay, finally Chris is done. Now I can go for my attempts, you know? Right. And, and actually to be fair, like he, he really wasn't quite ready to go for a red point attempt until right after my send anyway. So fortunately, Wait, so we did didn't. he, did you, did he continue to work on it a little bit? Uh, yes. Yes. I see. Yeah. So he worked on it by himself a couple of more days. He finally, did the route on top rope um, by himself for the first time after I had sent it. And that's when he felt ready. 
So wait, let's back up here. So first of all, we're talking what, like micro tractions or? Yes. So he's going up fixed lines and he freed the full route on micro tractions after you'd sent. Yep. Yeah. In fact, it was just about a week before I sent roughly that for the first time ever, he was able to top rope the crux pitch without falling. Wow. So then he wanted to do obviously to lead the thing continuously. So yep. how, how much after August 9th did you go back for him to try to do that? Let's see. It was late August. I think it was August 22nd, 23rd. Okay. Yeah. So you go back. Uh, and as you said earlier, he got super high on the route, but couldn't quite pull off that, that the last 513 pitch. Did he just run out of gas? Yeah. I think part of it was just the overall fatigue of the day. I mean, it catches up with you by the top of the diamond. So yeah, he ran out of gas a little bit and he, like I said, he tried it three times, always getting to the top of the pitch there. And then, yeah, he, then he was like, I can't do this today. And we had previously discussed the possibility of spending another night and him trying it the next morning at that very moment. He was like, gosh, I'm not sure. We jumarred to the top and we went back down to Chasm View and he was like, yeah, I, I definitely want to give it another go in the morning. So, Right. So you were prepared for that possibility. Yeah. And then so how did it go the next morning? So the next morning we, we went to the top again and Bruce went down by himself to just warm up on the last pitch. And I was lounging in the sun on top of the diamond. He was freezing cold in the shade down there because it wasn't early. <laughs> we didn't go early. And Bruce was taking a long time on mini traction. And the more time that went by, I was like, Oh no, like I think he wanted to do a real quick warm up, So he'd still be fresh. So I imagined that he was down there kind of getting spanked on the crux moves of the last pitch, which is 12 D and, and very thin, but he came up and was like, well, I'm feeling ready. So I guess he must've warmed up properly. Cause yeah, we headed down. We both just wrapped in with our lead line and rack and he sent both the last uh, second to last pitch and the last first try. Awesome. Obviously that wasn't his ultimate goal because then you went back, right? He wanted to do a one day free ascent. Yeah. I think he wanted the ideal of doing the one day. He knew it was going to be, you know, 50, 50 at best, but it was worth a shot. I mean, we also both knew this would be the last time that either of us would be this ready to send this route. So he Mm -hmm. figured, why not? Let's do it. But you know, he even struggled really when it came down to it, whether or not he wanted to go back because he was happy with the two day free ascent. He knew he could improve on it or he wanted to improve on it, I should say. Um, and he tried and that was, that was it. I mean, that was the best effort that he had that day and he's happy. Yeah. I was going to ask you, I mean, is he talking about going back next season or is, or is he had enough? Oh, hell no. Yeah. He's, he's had enough. And right. As have I on that route. It gets cold too in early September. I would think. Uh, yeah, and the diamond is in the sun for fewer hours in early September. Yeah, everything about it is just a little harder. Tell tell us about the root name, the Gambler's Fallacy. What what's behind that? So you know, we tossed around a bunch of root names over the years just for fun. Um, the Gambler's Fallacy is is the mistaken belief that a certain outcome is more or less likely depending on on previous outcomes. So like if you flip a coin and you get say four heads in a row, 
the gambler's fallacy would suggest, okay, well, it must be tails next time because it's been heads so many times. But it, of course, there's still a 50-50 chance that it's going to be one or the other. So we kind of like that this name because we laughed at how we were just kind of getting shut down on this route and having a hard time with it year after year after year. And yet we kept expecting this different outcome. Like, well, one day we'll send it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so... Yeah. It worked. <laughs> and it worked. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Are there other potential free lines up there, or do you think the good dry rock has been tapped out on the diamond? Or are we getting pretty close to that point? I think there's a lot of potential for good new lines up on the diamond. Really? I do, because the rock is so climbable. You mean with face holds? Yes. If you look at the faces in between the cracks, a lot of them have edges all over the place. Right. And I think there's certainly a lot of potential for free variations, you know, I mean, even gambler's fallacy and hearts and arrows. I mean, really we only freed half of the diamond as new terrain. Um, but it's hard enough and significant enough that it feels like a completely new route, but I could see a lot of like two pitch, three pitch free variations off of existing lines. But I also imagine there's going to be some complete lines as long as people are willing to, put in the work. In fact, there was another kind of a free route like you were describing done the same day, August 9th, right? Yeah, yeah. Phil Gruber and Josh Wharton were up there and they did a a free pitch that linked kind of the easiest climbing of, of the honeymoon is over in a way that made it 13A, which is supposed to be an excellent route. It's great. I mean, I think there's a lot of potential for stuff like that up there. I mean, what about you? Are you, you've done now two two new routes up there? I mean, are you kind of eyeing anything or Well, I've definitely eyed several things I'd like to try. Oh, but cool. but I doubt I'm gonna get on it next year because I kind of wouldn't mind taking a break from the diamond next year. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, in fact, I was wondering how it felt to spend four summers, you know, climbing primarily within an hour of your home in Boulder rather than traveling to, um, you know, some cool exotic place. I mean, you've climbed all over the world. Bruce has too. Did you think you were missing out or did it seem really cool to be doing something like this at home? Yeah, I like that question. Thanks. Um, you know, we never felt like we were missing out. Uh, certainly we had plenty of conversations in the countless hours we were walking together, but, you know, about, oh, another trip to the Bugaboos would be great. Or, we've never been to the Dolomites, you know, surely that came up a lot, but, but we never really felt like we were missing out because I think for both of us as great, uh, of an opportunity as it is to climb overseas, really, we both feel pretty rooted in the front range and, and to climb a new route that's of good quality and difficult up on the diamond of all places is really, I think our ideal for, um, a way to spend our time. You know, this year with with COVID, a lot of people are focused on closer to home stuff. It's kind of nice in a way to be local. You know, I mean, there's just so much around here that it doesn't really feel limiting to me with with COVID in terms of climbing. Yeah, just because you can't get on a plane. Yeah, it doesn't matter. You know, I as we were, as you were saying that, I was wondering too, as you were talking about finishing up the route and you know being obviously really psyched to complete that four-year effort is it also kind of disappointing in any way or do you sort of have do you feel like the loss of having a huge project like that no not at all 
No, I feel a hundred percent good about it. And I, I know Bruce does as well. Um, I've, you know, I've read stories, firsthand accounts of, of people who have felt that loss after a project, uh, whether it's a sport project or some big, huge thing, but I, I've never felt that. I mean, maybe it's just because there's so much other stuff I also want to do that to me, it's just a huge relief, a satisfying finish and, and now I can look forward to something else. You know, even if like for me right now, at first it was like a couple of weeks of pretty mellow exercise, just letting my body recoup. And now it's psyched to train again a little bit and get back into some sport climbing. So no, never felt any kind of letdown after this. Thank you, Chris, for coming on the show and sharing these stories. John Glassberg and his wife, Jess, shot some great photos of these two on their climb, and they also created a six-minute video that really captures the beauty and difficulty of this new route. You can find it at the Cutting Edge website. It's highly recommended. I want to say one other thing about Long's Peak before we wrap up. Part of what makes this mountain special is its isolation high in Rocky Mountain National Park. It's a stiff hike just to reach the base of the climbs. In Europe and other places, there would probably be roads, huts, and a cable car on this mountain. But in America, we have a special relationship with our public lands, protecting them in unique and marvelous ways. It's a fragile relationship, though, subject to many threats. As we near Election Day in the U.S., I hope you'll support the protection of public lands with your vote. Thanks to Hilleberg the Tentmaker for being a stalwart sponsor of The Cutting Edge. You can learn all about their stalwart tents at hilleberg.com. Until next time, this is Dougal McDonald wishing you happy climbs. <laughs>